Gracious God, we, we just thank you that we get to gather today. That we are reminded, just as I said, that I am reminded that this is such a luxury to be able to gather, stream to people around the world online, to gather in a room without fear of persecution or pain. But Lord, I, I just, I'm reminded though, as we come before your word today, I feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of what we're about to talk about. So Lord, we need you right now. We need our focus, our attention to be upon you, our ears to be open to your voice, our hearts to be soft to your guidance and correction. And God, who am I to declare your word right now? What right do I have other than just being a vessel for you? So would there just be less of me, less of me, and more of you, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, friends, we have a whole bunch of people joining us online at the moment. If you are online, one way I'd encourage you to engage, we have a whole bunch of uh, leaders. We'd love you to engage in the online chat, participate in community. And if you're in the room, I'm so excited to meet with you afterwards. I want to start with a story about something that happened in 1960. 1960 in the United States was a really interesting time to be alive. Now, I don't know that from experience. I wasn't born in 1960, but um, I am a student of history. and It's actually one of my favorite periods to study. In 1960, in the United States, there was a, a disease that was uh, moving across America. In fact, it had been there for hundreds of years and across our world of racism, where there was a greater global attention being placed upon the idea of inequality between races and cultures. And in 1960, we saw the rise of the, the civil rights movement, the, the peaceful, anti-violent civil rights movement that started to see things change and trigger for the betterment of, human, of humanity. There was one moment in 1960 that kind of typified this. And it was a moment that we're going to step into the story of a young girl named Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was six years old. And November the 14th, 1960, Ruby got to go to grade one for the first time. She was so excited. It was amazing. But what she knew and the rest of the nation was that this was a significant moment. Because you see, Ruby Bridges was an African-American six-year-old girl. And on November the 14th in 1960 was the first time in the South of America that schools had to ensure segregation occurred, that white children and black children were able to be in the same room together. And this six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges gets chosen for the weight of the world to be on her shoulders in this moment as she goes for the first time into a school, William France Public School, that until then had been completely kept private, only those who had the right color or cultural heritage. Can you imagine the weight of what Ruby must be experiencing? And in this photo, what you see is Ruby being escorted. Because this was so, is so controversial that when the school decided, when the state decided to desegregate and the school opened its doors, that Ruby would be the first African-American young girl to come to the school, all of the white students chose to no longer go to school. Half of the staff resigned. So Ruby Bridges was the only student in the most over-resourced public school in America at that moment. But as she rocked up, it wasn't just that the school was empty, but the streets were full with protesters holding signs that are labeling her with words that are too disgusting and inappropriate for me to mention here. In fact, one, often she would see a coffin held up a little cardboard coffin with an effigy of herself in it as a threat as to what people would like to do to her because 
she was going to school. A six-year-old girl. How did she respond? In this moment, what they found is that they, they wanted the state wanted to protect her as they started to desegregate. So they provided her with a child psychologist and four U.S. marshals, two to walk in front of her and behind her. She made her way down the line of protesters on the way to school. And this child psychologist would meet with her regularly and ask, how is she going? What's going on? And to her surprise, Ruby seemed very resilient for a six-year-old girl who was seeing death threats and racist slogans on her way to receive the education that should be her by human rights. And there's a moment when as Ruby was making her way to school, she paused in front of the protesters and she speaks. And then she continues. And the child psychologist asked her about this. He said, Ruby, what, what was happening in that moment? You stopped and you spoke to them. Were you speaking to the protesters? And she says, no, I wasn't speaking to the protesters. And she says, well, Ruby, what were you doing? And here's Ruby sitting at her dinner table, coloring in as she's talking to a child psychologist. And she says, I was praying. Why were you praying? I was praying for them, Ruby says. Or what prayer did you say? And Ruby is documented as saying, please God, forgive these people. Because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them, just like you did those folks a long time ago who said mean things about you. Six years old. Now we hear that story and we're like, oh my goodness, what a woman, what a, what a girl, what faith, what boldness. It reminds us and it warms us the fact that every, nearly every single nonviolent peaceful movement in, that has changed the course of history at the center of it has been a religion, more than likely Christianity, where someone of faith has said there instead, instead of acting violently, I will be a person of prayer and a person of forgiveness. But it should challenge us. And I, I say this. Because what would you do if that was you? If you were Ruby, how would you have responded? In fact, let me go a step further. If that was your child, and you were sending your child to school every day knowing that a coffin with their effigy, their likeness, was being held in front of them as a death threat for a human right, how would you respond? Would you pray for forgiveness for those threatening your life? Yet every day Ruby returned, Ruby prayed, Ruby persevered, and went down in history as a significant moment and a change in the course of civil rights in America. And friends, when I hear this story, I'm reminded of a simple thing, that there is power in the choice to forgive. There is power in the choice to be resilient against immense persecution. That forgiveness first, friends, is found at the feet of Jesus. You know, we've been in this series called Teach Us How to Pray. And the heart behind it is that we want God to give us the language that can, can help us develop an intimate relationship with Him. The first week, Fiona spoke this great sermon about why does Jesus want to teach us to pray? What is that about? The week after, we talked about the idea of our Father, that we get to call God Father, meaning that we have the same relationship with Him as our elder brother Jesus does, the same position before the throne. The week after that, Calvin spoke great about what it means to us to bring bold prayers before God, praying for our world and saying, hey, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And last week, Fiona spoke so beautifully around the idea of, you know what, God, we, we want to bring some of the things that are personal to us, these ideas of give us today our daily bread and how God responds to every single prayer. But today, friends, we step into a moment of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that, if I'm honest, is a little bit hard to swallow for some of us. In fact, I want to hazard a guess for all of us, where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us and forgive them. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus gives us these words. Forgive us our debts, he invites us to pray to God. As we forgive those who have debts against us. And then after the Lord's Prayer in verse 14, Jesus continues. And he says this. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Can we just call a spade a spade here? And say up until this point in the Lord's Prayer, it's been, oh, this sounds like a really beautiful thing for us to pray. And then we get to this moment. It's actually the first moment in the, in the prayer. I don't know if you've noticed this where human agency is encouraged. The first time where we don't just ask of God, we make a commitment to God along with His action. First time. And I've got to be honest, I find this part of the prayer difficult, and I think some of you may as well. Number one, you might be sitting here today or joining us and saying, hey, I don't know how I feel about God having to forgive me. What have I ever done? Maybe, maybe that's a, an offensive prayer for you to pray today. And I just want to say, hey, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome here. And maybe when we start talking about forgiving other people, that's a hard part. Because there are some of you here today that you've heard forgiveness used as, as a means to make you feel guilty for being hurt. As a means for people to say to you, you should just get over it and move on and forgive. You've had forgiveness bandied around as like a really simple activity as if what has been done to you is really easy to move past. And I just want to offer, I don't actually believe that's what forgiveness is. I don't think forgiveness is easy at all. I actually think what Jesus invites us to pray here is one of the most difficult things humanity can do. To forgive those who have hurt. What we saw Ruby Bridges do on that day is not a task of human strength, but divine power. And friends, I believe that God wants you to know today that you are not just someone that is forgiven, but someone that can be empowered to be forgiving. And that there is a life and a hope for you. Why do I say that? Because I believe more powerful than any bomb, more powerful than any protest, more powerful than any war, any politician, any conspiracy theory out there has always been at the center of human history, the power of forgiveness to transform the human heart and the course of humanity. And I believe that God's calling us to be a church, a people marked by forgiveness. So what does this look like today? Well, today I want to answer three questions for us. The first one is this, what is forgiveness? The second one simply, what does it mean for me to be forgiven? And thirdly, what does it mean for me to forgive? It's pretty simple, but I believe it's beautifully deep at the same time. So come with me. And maybe you already know where I'm going. Hey, would you allow the Holy Spirit to whisper to you in this moment? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to maybe raise where, where, what He wants to talk with you about? What does it mean for us to have Forgiveness. What does it mean for us to forgive? What is forgiveness? Well, when I was in primary school, I had a grade two teacher, and I remember distinctly the greatest thing I learned in grade two was what someone else thought forgiveness was. And when I was in grade two, I was a pretty rambunctious kid, I'd run around pretty wild, had a you know pretty tough group of friends, and sometimes we'd get into tussles or we'd trip each other over. And so this isn't a specific example, but just an analogy that did happen in many different ways in many different times. There was this guy named Jimmy, and let's say Jimmy would trip me over intentionally one day because he thought it was funny, and I was upset at this. What would happen in grade two was our teacher would call us together, and she would mediate the problem. And she would say, all right, Jimmy, what, what happened? And he would say, I tripped Michael. I'd be like, he tripped me. And so she would say, well, Jimmy, what do you need to say to Michael? And Jimmy would go, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael. And then she would turn to me and say, Michael, what do you want to say to Jimmy? Now, he was just me being tripped over. Like, I was generally fine. You know, I was a little bit upset, but I was okay. So I'd be like, oh. That's all right, Jimmy. She goes, ah, Michael, no, it's not all right. He tripped you. You have to say, I forgive you, Jimmy. I'm like, oh my goodness. 
Okay, I forgive you, Jimmy. Can we go back and play now? And then Jimmy and I would run along and play. But what has taught me growing up was that forgiveness was something you had to do. Forgiveness was something you had to do in answer to how someone had hurt you, wronged you, or spurned you, and that you had no, no other option. And so I kind of resented forgiveness growing up because I didn't always want to forgive. You know, I didn't always want to forgive Jimmy when he kept tripping me over. I was just like, oh, let's just move on. Like, it's not a big deal. But I think that's actually a poor understanding of forgiveness. It weakens forgiveness when we think what it is is just the way we move on from things that have gone wrong in our life. Forgiveness, friends, is not about moving on. Forgiveness is not about trusting someone again. Forgiveness is not about forgetting the past, excusing the past, or just getting over hurt. None of those things are healthy understandings of what Jesus is talking about here. See, when Jesus comes along and says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us, we have to you know, interrogate this a little bit. What does it mean to forgive someone of a debt? You know, there are different translations of this. If you've read different versions of the Bible, you say, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our trespasses. The reason why I've chosen a translation that says debts is because I, I think, and most commentators would agree, that the word used here, uh, which is ophelima, is actually best translated as a financial transactional debt. That Jesus is actually trying to communicate something specific about what the word debt is. Now, trespasses and sins are also great and can be interposed. I'm not trying to say anything about those two words. But when Jesus says the words forgive, that word forgive in Greek means let go and no longer hold on to. And so what Jesus seems to be saying is if someone's got a debt, then you have something that they owe you. That's what a debt generally is. When someone's in debt to someone else, they owe someone else. So what Jesus is saying is let go of what they owe you. When we pray this to God, we're saying, God, let go of what I owe you. Now, that seems like a fairly simple understanding, but, but why is this so profound? Because it reminds us, friends, that forgiveness always costs someone something. Forgiveness always costs something something. Let, let, let's say after this service, you, you wanted to invite me over for lunch, or you invite someone else over for lunch today, and you, like, you, I come over to your house, and you know, we're getting ready for lunch. It's really exciting. Right in the middle of your dinner table is a family heirloom. It's a beautiful lamp. It's amazing. It's clearly worth a lot of money. And me being as clumsy as I am, I'm telling wild stories and waving my arms around. And suddenly I knock over this, this precious lamp and it falls over and crashes to the ground and splits into many pieces. Now in that moment, if I said sorry and you're like, oh, that's all right, let's just move on. It doesn't change the fact that there's been something broken that was worth something, that was valuable. There is less in the world of something right now because of my actions. So if I come to you and say, I'm sorry, I will pay for the lamp. What am I doing? I will settle my debt with you. I will pay what this costs. But if you were to forgive me of that, you might still make me pay. But, but what Jesus is trying to highlight here in this moment is that to forgive someone of a debt would be to say, don't you worry about paying it. I will absorb the cost myself. Now, this is pivotal because I don't know if we always think about forgiveness like this. That someone has to count the cost of the lamp. Someone has to count the cost of the lamp. Someone has to count the cost of what's gone wrong. So what does it mean when Jesus is calling forgiveness here? When we come before God, what we're honestly saying, when we ask God, forgive us, what we're saying is, God, you have a ledger against my life of things you know that I've done. Can you wipe it clean? Can you pay the price on my behalf? as I will do for others. Forgiveness is choosing not to make the other person pay 
Forgiveness lets go of revenge, lets go of ever being paid back, it lets go of the need for an apology, although sometimes apology is appropriate. And so Jesus really is saying forgiveness, praying for forgiveness is two things. We come before God and say, God, please forgive us what we owe you for our wrong. I can't pay this back. Please don't make me. And in response, I'm going to forgive those who owe me. And I won't make them pay for what they've done against me. Friends, this is such a profound understanding of what forgiveness is that Jesus is exposing to us here. And just come with me as he kind of extrapolates on this over the next, over the next little bit when we understand what he's actually inviting us into. When we understand what forgiveness is, it's the paying of the debt. It's not canceling, it's paying. And then he steps in and he says, and you can be forgiven. What does it mean for us to be forgiven? There was a U.S. president that was recently, um, a ex-U.S. president that was recently at a family leadership summit in America. And he was asked, um, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And I'm not going to tell you which president it was because I just think that that would distract us from the, the story. But this happened a couple of months ago. And this leader hops up and when asked, hey, do you love God and has he forgiven you? And have you asked for forgiveness? He says this, I'm not sure that I have asked for forgiveness. I just go on and I try to do a better job from wherever I am. And I don't think I need forgiveness. I think if I've done something wrong, I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't need to. Right there, in that moment, we have a snapshot into what I think we would call cultural Christianity. Because here would be the question. Can you be a follower of Jesus and not need Him to forgive you? Can you be a follower of Jesus and not need God's forgiveness? I would humbly suggest no. That when you come to follow Jesus, there is an initial understanding that seems to happen in us that humanity has a debt owed to God. That there is something that is wrong. To be a Christian, friends, a follower of Christ, we are unified by one thing. If you call to yourself a Christian, then there is, you call yourself a disciple, someone who's following Jesus, then the one commonality we have isn't what shoes we put on this morning, isn't even what location we're joining from. It's not even if we liked the new song that James led us in earlier today. The one commonality we have is that everyone that calls themselves a follower of Jesus at some stages recognize this, I need to be forgiven. I'm not okay. That I am a sinner and the only way I can become a saint is by Christ paying for my debt. Look to the person next to you. Just look at someone around you. Some of you are still looking at me. That's awesome. Look at somebody else. Now, that person, if they are a follower of Christ, has admitted this. They desperately need forgiveness. Now, you don't need to go ask them why. That's not your business. But you can know this, that if we have made that statement, then we have made a realization. And we might have forgotten that today. And I want us to return to that, that there is a debt that humanity owes to God. What do I mean by this? Because this is confronting for us. We don't like talking about this too much. But in the Bible, we read in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sure fallen short of the glory of God. We hear this a lot in sermons. Hey, everyone sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. But what does this mean? What it means is this, God had an original intention for how the world would play out. He had a design. He had it, it was perfect and was good. It was not meant to be filled with the brokenness we now experience. But what happened is that not just Adam and Eve, 
But all of humanity, you and I, at some stage have said, God, I don't want to go your way. I want to live by my plan. See, God's plan was this, that he might be glorified and that you might be blessed by the good way he created things to work. And when we didn't want to work that way, ultimately what we're doing is we need to recognize we're stepping into God's house and pushing over every lamp we can find. Now, I want to take you a step back because that can be hard for us to recognize. But there is a common understanding that Christianity makes about who God is and what creation is. Who does creation belong to? It's not me. It's not you. All the creation, all of the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. See, we believe as Christians that all things come from God and will return to God one day. Everyone take a big, deep breath in. Who gave you that breath? Breathe out. Don't die on me. Where did you get that breath from? What led you to deserve that oxygen? See, this is known as common grace in Christianity, that we have been given these things so we might enjoy God and glorify Him in this world. But we use this breath for our own selfish needs. We break the world. And then we say, hey, there is a debt we owe back to God. You're like, I don't owe God nothing. That is, a, that, is, that is such a statement of us not failing to recognize who is actually the King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. And when you can recognize, friends, that this whole thing belongs to God and that we have broken it, it shifts our position before Him. J.D. Greer was talking to a Muslim once and this Muslim was saying to J.D. Greer, a Baptist a pastor in America, he said, I don't understand why someone needs to die to pay back for your sins. Like, that doesn't make sense. If I want to forgive someone, they come and ask me for forgiveness. I don't go and send my son or my dog to be sacrificed because of their need for forgiveness. And J.D. Greer answers him like this. Choosing to forgive somebody means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost of the injustice of what they've done. Imagine you stole my car and you wrecked it and you don't have insurance and all the money to pay for it. What are my choices? J.D. Greer says, I could make you pay. I could hold you before a judge and have the court-mandated payment plan put upon you. But let's step this through. Imagine if that car that you crashed was a $1.5 million Ferrari. You're probably going to spend the rest of your life paying it back and then some. And this debt is going to hang over you. So what choices do I have? Well, I have another choice, J.D. says. I could forgive you. What I'm choosing to do, say, if I forgive you is this. I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed. You have no debt to pay, not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you something you did not give me initially and accept and even though you deserve the opposite. Friends, this is how forgiveness works. It comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost rather than insisting that the wrongdoer does. And that is what Jesus, the Son of God, the mighty God we serve, was doing when he came to earth and lived as a man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. What he's saying is this, is that what we've done by cutting ourselves off from the life of God and walking our own ways, we have one thing that is paid to us, the wages of sin is death. It's because if you don't want any of life, there's only one other option. But to come back, there is a debt that must be paid and someone has to pay it. And this is why the cross is so significant for us as Christians. Because it's not something that just makes us feel better about ourselves. It's something that pays a debt on our behalf and does all that needs to be done. 
This is why central to the Christian faith is the story of forgiveness. And central to your story and mine is the understanding, friends, there is a debt that no longer needs to be paid. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, Christ showed us God's bank accounts were full enough to cover over the sin and the shame and the wrongdoing. Not of just what you've done, but everything you will do and everything everyone will do because God is enough. And this is so beautiful. And should move us to the point of recognizing that when Jesus comes and says, come and pray, God, forgive me of my debt. He is not saying, come and feel bad. Come and feel guilty. Come and feel like a bad person. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, God's kindness leads us to repentance. What's he saying? Come and be free. Because you know what the world says? It says, if you've stuffed up, it encourages you to act like the president. Try harder. Pay it back. Prove that you are worth something. And the answer is this, friends. How much do you have to prove? When will it be enough? But only in Christianity does Christ come and say, I've paid it back for you. Be free. Pete Grieg says it like this. It doesn't matter what you've said or done, what you've thought about saying or doing, where you've been or who you've been with. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you, friends. Which means it doesn't matter what you did this week, doesn't matter where you are, what you're feeling right now. If you feel guilt, if you feel condemnation, if you feel like you need to do something. If you're here today because you think going to church makes you a better person, it doesn't and it won't. The only thing that we can do is not go to behavior modification, but spiritual transformation at the feet of Jesus Christ and say, you have paid my debt, now change my heart. Have you had that happen in you, friends? Because that's what's on offer, offer today. That's what Jesus comes to say, which is why in John 1 John 1 9, Jesus says this. That's not it. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What does it say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and that was like Anna. It is faithful and just. Do you say how it doesn't say he is faithful and scandalous? He's faithful and overly generous. He's faithful and, no, it says just, which means what? That Christ's forgiveness is not unjust. Why? Because justice has been met. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he has paid what the law demands, what the universe demands, we should pay back for our sins. So when we come and ask for forgiveness, he says, I've already settled your accounts. You are free. You are free. Have you come before God and confessed? Have you come before God and waited? There's only two ways that we can respond to this. A farmer had a sheep and a pig. And I know some of you are like, wow, we're going to sheep and pigs now. This is really interesting. This sheep and this pig, the story goes, find a hole in the net and they escape from through the fence for 24 hours. The farmer's worried about his sheep and his pig. He's looking everywhere for him for 24 hours until he hears this bleating in a field. This meh, meh. He's like, that's the sheep. It's the best sheep noise I can do. Sorry for those men. New Zealand, you're right. And there's this moment, right, where he goes and he finds the sheep. And he sees this pit. And in this pit is this sheep and this pig. And what's the sheep doing? It's bleating for its life, hoping that the shepherd will hear its voice. Hear me. Find me. Save me. And he looks down. What's the pig doing? It's wallowing in the mud. And the farmer is telling the story, he says, you can either be a sheep or you can be a pig. That's how you respond to where you are right now. You either make your home or you say, shepherd, come find me. 
Come cleanse me. Come save me. This is what it means. Friends, to be forgiven doesn't mean that Christ excuses what you've done. It doesn't go, hey, remember that naughty thing you did? Let's just forget about it. Don't worry. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, it mattered. It mattered enough I went to a cross. Forgiveness is not about making excuses, and it's not about excusing what's happened. It's about paying for what has happened. This is why it's such a beautiful truth that, friends, you can not be too bad or too boring for God's unconditional love, only too proud to acknowledge how desperately you need it today. For to be a Christian, says C.S. Lewis, is to forgive the inexcusable as God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To forgive, friends, is when Jesus says the dysfunction stops here at Calvary. I'm writing a new story. And it'll be a story of redemption. And he invites us into that story. So that when we choose to forgive, we say the hate stops with us. The generational hurt stops with me. The pain in my office stops here. I will be to others what Jesus was to me. Friends, do you know that you're forgiven? But you're not forgiven just to stop there. You're forgiven to forgive. You're forgiven to forgive. Jesus, in this moment, he stipulates this interesting thing, doesn't he? He says, hey, you come before God when you pray and you say this, God, forgive me of my sins. Confess. It doesn't matter how dark it is. His grace is more than enough to handle it. His blood is still strong enough to carry it and cover it and cleanse it. Forgive me of my debt that I owe you, God. Don't make me pay it back. But then he says, and then pray with it, just as I have done that for others. Now, in my, my wrestling this week, I'm like, God, is, which one comes first? Do we go forgive others and then we come and you know, ask you for forgiveness? Or do we ask you for forgiveness and we go forgive others? And this is how we work in, in humanity, right? We want a formula of, of how we interact with God. And what I've learned, my relationship with God is not formulaic. It's not this than that. It's symbiotic. It's, it's this interwoven relationship that as this is happening, you want to find that this is happening as well over here. What Jesus is saying is it is impossible to have a true revelation of all that God has done for you, all that he has wiped clean for you, and not turn around and see others who have a debt against you and go, hey, don't worry about it because, oh my gosh, hey, that's fine. That's fine. In fact, it's not fine. Is it all right? I've got to say it to my grade two teacher. I forgive you. I forgive you. Why don't we do that? Why do we struggle? I think it's because, friends, we actually, I was thinking, praying about this week, I think we actually think there's a limit to the amount God would forgive us. That when we look at someone else that we can't, we're struggling to forgive. What, what I think is going on for us there is we go, if I did what you did, I don't know if God would forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive you. We talk about Hitler. Like, I don't know how God could forgive Hitler. And what we're really saying there is, I have, if I did what Hitler did, he wouldn't forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive that. And then just come back from that, which megalomaniacal leader is there for you, that family member, that, that friend. And so we insert them. We're like, how could I ever? And honestly, what we're saying in that moment is, I think God's grace is limited when it comes to what you did. And I just don't think that that's true. I honestly don't think that we would say that consciously. I think it happens at a subconscious level. But here's what I know. Our forgiveness is only as available to others as the forgiveness we believe that we have received. Because the way that we treat others is a direct representation of the way that we believe God has treated us. And unforgiveness, friends, is one of the fastest ways to grow bitter, grow distant, and grow cold from God and angry at the world. A writer once said that to not forgive someone is to drink poison and think the other person's going to die. It just doesn't happen. But God makes no exclusion. He says this, 
Do you see my forgiveness of you, of what you did as wild, as grace-fielded and as inexcusable? If you can see that I forgave what was inexcusable in you, then you can look at what you can't excuse in someone else and go, hey, just as Christ did for me, so I will do for you. Because this is the mark of the Christian. Desmond Tutu, the bishop of South Africa, after the apartheid government came down, he wrote a book all about this, this reconciliation commission that went in to look at the crimes that was happening in and around South Africa and got whites and black people to come together and to, to testify and, and, and say, hey, either this is what I did or this is what was done to me. It was, a, it was a method of trying to heal. And he wrote some of these stories in his book. There's this one story where two people came before the condition, a mother and a daughter, Mrs. Kalata and her daughter. And Mrs. Kalata said, uh, told the story of her husband who was an advocate for rural black people in rural communities who was arrested by the police and consistently tortured all the time, until one day, he didn't come home for 24 hours. They didn't know where he was until she found and saw his car, a burning picture of his car on the front page of the newspaper. They found him dead, and obviously much uh, his body had been tortured over long periods of time. She cries loudly as she tells the hearing, describing the autopsy's report about his torture, that the commission actually had to take a break and be adjourned. It was too heavy for everyone to hear. When they reconvened, Miss Collada's daughter stood up and she testified. Years had gone by and she was now a young lady. She pleaded with the commission, help me find those who killed my father. Help me find those who tortured him. But she was not crying aloud because she wanted vengeance. She says, because we want to forgive and we don't know who to forgive. Help us find us, the people who did this, so we can forgive them. And some policemen came forward, confessed to the crime. And rather than continuing the endless cycle of hatred, these two women forgave the men. They said, it stops here. It stops with us. It stops with me. Sky Jathani says it like this. Does forgiveness mean we don't care about justice? Does forgiveness mean there's no consequence for evil? No. What it means is that we leave justice and vengeance in God's hands. He alone can rightly, our job as agents of his kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God and Christ has forgiven us. Friends, I want to be clear here. Forgiveness does not mean trust. Forgiveness does not mean that you don't let anyone have appropriate boundaries. There are some of you here today that when you're hearing this word, you're hearing me say, forgive everybody and allow them back into intimate relationships in your life. That is not what I believe is being said. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there's not safety. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're not able to have good and safe places for your family or yourself to dwell away from those who might seek to do you harm. Forgiveness says this, I no longer want vengeance. I believe Christ has paid a debt on your behalf. I no longer expect you to pay it back. It stops with me and it stops here. Because no matter how many people go to jail, no matter how much people pay in money, vengeance, the one thing we know is an ever hungry monster and it is never satisfied, friends. It never satisfies. What we find is that, friends, forgiveness is not a response to the apology of man, but the grace of God. That's why Jesus says, forgive, forgive me as I forgive others. Because this is one of the most revolutionary kingdom-centered prayers we can pray. When we offer to others' creative goodness and forgiving love, we become echoes of Christ's own miraculous healing and liberating power. This guy named Gordon Wilson, I'll finish with this story today. 
he, he lived in Ireland. And when he lived in Ireland, him and his daughter were found, um, they were just hanging out in a local cafe and a bomb went off, a bomb planted by the IRA. And this bomb went off burying him and his little girl in this rubble and he called out to her. He's like, Marie, are you all right? Can you hear me? Can you hold my hand? And she squeezed his hand underneath the rubble. She says, yes, daddy. She says, Marie, are you all right? And his little girl says, I love you, daddy. It's the last words he heard from his daughter. She went and she passed away. It was rushed to hospital and they did the best that they could, but they couldn't save her. And the press gathered around this man named Gordon Wilson. And they said, how are you going to respond to these terrorists? He says, don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer. But I know there has to be a plan because if not, I would end it right now. It's part of a greater plan. I believe God is good and we shall meet again. I have lost my daughter and I miss her and we shall miss her, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. So I shall pray for those people, the IRA bombers tonight and every night. May God forgive them. This isn't fair. And friends, can I just say, every time I tell this story, as a father of two little boys, my heart breaks. I can't picture this. But what we find out is this moment with Gordon Wilson actually sent ripples through Ireland. And the IRA actually through their political arm, Sinn Féin, actually came back later and apologized radically for this act, saying this should not have happened. We were wrong. This is horrible. His moment of forgiveness taught a nation what grace looked like. Friends, we have that power every single day. And I'm not saying this is easy because forgiveness costs something. This week when Sarah and I were chatting about this sermon, I'm like, ah, oh, sweetheart, I just don't know if I can preach this. Like, we start talking through some situations where I'm feeling like I haven't yet forgiven and it's been difficult. And we, we have to wrestle with God through this stuff. And this is the thing I've hated about this series and loved at the same time. Love this series. That's the main thing. But I have to hop up here and preach. And, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. So there are things that have happened in my life that I'm like, God, you've got to teach me what forgiveness looks like. And it hurts. Forgiveness costs. It's not easy. But in that moment, can I tell you where Sarah and I landed? I remember a teaching I heard when I was young about when you struggle with the fact that forgiveness hurts you more than anything else. This is where you look. You look at the one who was hurt on our behalf. When I hear this story of a daughter dying and a father, forgiveness, even because that I remember a man named Jesus, who when he was pinned to a cross, nails through his wrists, and he was hung in there, flayed and torn and abused and scourged. He looked down on the very soldiers who pinned him there, and what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How good do you think that felt? How comfortable do you think Jesus was in that moment? Do you think he was like, oh, isn't it nice to forgive? No, friends, it would have hurt. But here's what he had, a greater thing in mind, that the hate, the, forgive, the unforgiveness, the hurt, the sin stopped with him. And thank God that that's the case. So now, friends, we can be the acts of forgiveness in our world. Sky Dathani, let me repeat these words as we close. Our job as agents of his kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. You are invited today to be an agent for that which the world doesn't know but desperately needs. May we know the power of forgiveness. 
Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? Whether you're in the room or online, would you just draw still with me before God? And I wonder wherever you are today, if you would just hold your hands in fists on your lap. Jesus gives us this prayer because he longs to not only have a relationship with us, but to restore us that we might be restorers of his kingdom. So today as you clench your fists, I just want you to think, what sin or shame do you carry into this moment? What guilt or darkness is telling you that you need to try and be a better person? As those things come to mind, hold it firm in your hands. Maybe you're here today, you don't yet know the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Turn, believe and repent. Confess your sins to me and I will forgive you and renew you. Maybe you're here today and there is someone in your life that you know When I talk about forgiveness, you're like, I just, they owe me. They owe me. Christ comes to say to you, I paid your debt. Will you swallow this? Jesus, in this moment, as we clench our fists, I just pray right now, we can't do this in our strength. We can't be forgiven. We can't be transformed. And we cannot forgive unless we know your power whether we've got to do this just once or every day for the rest of our lives, teach us now what it means to be forgiven and to forgive. Friends, you are new already. I want you to open your hands as you pray that prayer. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive others of theirs. You may not be ready for a moment, but as the band sings a song over you, Just sit and wait and listen. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. Don't do it in your strength. Do it in His. In Jesus' name we pray.